to episode 14 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. How you just... How, how's the... How's the... How's the... How's the <laughs> it's the episode 14 nerves getting to you. No, I'm going to speak in tongues today. <laughs> how are you doing today, Dermot? Great. And we have a cat, and we're going to let the cat just prowl around and cause problems. Uh, yes, there is a cat, and... I think if I just pay a small amount of attention to her, I will feed her psychosis, and she will eventually leave me alone. At the top of the podcast today, after a a long hiatus, I posted up a new Blooms and Barnacles blog post this week. It's called Houses of Decay, and it is about the rivalry between Yates and Joyce, and the things they agree on, and the things that they don't. And I did a very, I think, a very nice cartoon of mm-hmm. uh, with a Lovecraftian angle to it. Yeah, so. and if you want to know why a Lovecraftian angle would be appropriate, you have to read the post. If you want to learn a little bit of obscure Joyce mythology. What's the title of that uh, blog post again? Houses of Decay. Okay. So check that out. Because did you know we also have a blog? Mm. So I'm not sure how, I'm never quite sure how people discover the, the podcast. A bit of both, I would think. Yeah, yeah, but some people, I think, come through the blog, and then others just find it out in the world. I so. find podcasts through blogs. I'm not I'm not one of these tablet dwellers like you are who has the magic <laughs> light box that can, you know, show you all the pods. But then again, I'm 49. <laughs> that is really not an excuse. Well, there you go. I have a quill pen. So. You are 49, but more <clears throat> importantly than being 49, you're also very technologically stubborn. Yeah, but selective. And uh, that's about why, the technology yeah. that I use. That's so. why it's bizarre. Yeah, well, there you go. And uh, that's not the, the theme of our, our no. podcast today. It's about so. strangeness in the past, and riddles and puzzles, mm-hmm. ghosts. We're working our way through Nestor here, and we are going to talk about Stephen's riddle. And if you've ever read Ulysses, which really you shouldn't listen to this before you read Ulysses. You should read and then listen, I think. What do you think is the better order? Well, you don't want spoilers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you probably remember the scene in Nestor. So let's let's set the scene. So it's right after the part where they talk about Pyrrhus, which was our, not our last, but our last, last episode. So Stephen has the boys recite some facts about Pyrrhus. They fail. So then they say, oh, sir, please tell us a ghost story. And he's like, okay, let's read this John Milton poem. All right, Talbot, stand up and recite it. And Talbot does not recite it very well. But then the boys tell him today is a half day and they're going out to play hockey because it's Thursday. So he, he, right as he's ready to dismiss them, he does something I used to do when I teach kids, which is say, who wants to guess a riddle? And they're all like, yes, give me a riddle. And then Stephen offers up this riddle, which Dermot's going to read, but don't read the answer. In fact, don't look at the answer, because I want you to guess the answer. The cock crew, the sky was blue, the bells in heaven were striking eleven. Tis time for this poor soul to go to heaven. What is it? Answer is... No, 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 no. Did you read the answer? No. I want you to answer it. I have no idea. Oh. How could I? (laughs) You're smart. (laughs) I'm not a riddle head. Uh, is that a thing? Yeah. I, they, they call themselves the r- riddlings. Uh, yeah. The answer is the fox burying his grandmother under a holly bush. Well, it's obvious now that you tell me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if uh, Gollum told you that riddle, you would get eaten yeah, by Gollum. You're messed, yeah. 
So what we're going to do, usually, I would say if you're like me, you read this in Ulysses, and you're like, I bet I can figure out what that's supposed to mean. And you think about it for a long time, and you get nowhere. Because it's a really odd little riddle. But the, the cat is now is taking part. Marauding so through, uh, beneath the desk. <laughs> so um, I completely lost my train. Yeah, but it doesn't make any sense. Mm. And Stephen's students react accordingly. They, they just seem really disappointed. And Stephen laughs to himself when he tells him the answer. And I assume Stephen isn't a very popular teacher. Mm. It's just not fun. Like, it's not fun to, to pose a question to which there is no answer. Mm. Especially for a, a game like a riddle. I've read some commentaries that see this as Joyce's stab at authority that that when he himself was a teacher because he was an English teacher like me um not to make this all about myself he had kind of a whimsical teaching style he was very anti-authoritarian he didn't want to be like Mr. Deasy mm -hmm. who we haven't met yet um on the podcast but he wanted to yeah he he wanted to think outside the box get the the students thinking a little more creatively or to not be so confined by rigid educational expectations, which makes sense reading Joyce's work. I mean, he definitely was interested in kind of breaking free from the constraints right. of the, you know, novelist style. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I think one, one thing that's interesting, too, is that as a little aside that setting a long story all in a single 24 hours in 2019 really wouldn't seem that radical mm. but ulysses was radical on those grounds alone when it when it came out and many other as well but yeah that that in that in the early 1920s that was still a pretty shocking way to write a novel mm -hmm. all right back to this riddle so if you're also like me and you want to know what this means you probably went on the internet do you think that was a good idea probably not <laughs> no it is a great idea because that's where you find the blooms and barnacles podcast oh, and yeah, blog yeah. So, but before you get there you might have spent a lot of time on facebook or worse yet reddit reading people's interpretations of it which kind of follow predictable veins so one interpretation you'll see a lot both on reddit and Facebook and, you know, in more scholarly texts, uh, is that this is, you know, has a biblical inter in interpretation. Could you see, see it as a, a religious or biblical symbolism? Well, the cock crew, obviously, Peter mm -hmm. denies Christ. Can, can, you, um, can you tell that story? Yeah, the, the Romans come to arrest Jesus mm -hmm. and they ask Peter, does he know the, the Messiah? And Peter denies it three times as the cock crows, before the cock crows. Mm -hmm. at, at the third denial, then he hears the cock crow as Christ had prophesied. Mm -hmm. And that, that's how he knows he's made a big boo-boo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the Last Supper, Jesus mm -hmm. said he'd betray him three times. Mm -hmm. Right, so there's the crowing cock, mm -hmm. and also has, tis time for this poor soul to go to heaven. Mm -hmm. So there, there's that. And in the paragraph preceding this, there is also a lot of symbolism. So as Stephen is teaching his lesson, there will be these paragraphs kind of stuck in throughout that are just Stephen's thoughts. They can be interpreted in a number of ways. I've always interpreted them as Stephen has no interest in being a teacher. Hmm. It's just a way to pay the rent on the tower. And at the end of the chapter two, spoiler alert, Mr. Deasy says to him, I don't imagine you'll be a teacher for long. Mm -hmm. 
and because he's completely distracted. So he, he thinks about Aristotle. He thinks about all these other things. Also thinks about Buck Mulligan and Haynes. He's completely distracted. And he's also distracted by the, the death of his mother. I've also seen people say like, oh, it just shows how brilliant his mind is that he's multitasking. Well, I, I think that one can be both brilliant and distracted at the same time. Mm. And the reason he's thinking about Aristotle, form of forms and all this stuff is just because that's what he would rather be doing. He really has no interest in teaching young boys about Pyrrhus and Milton and right. these other things. And so in the paragraph before this, he echoes this line, that, which is from the Milton poem Lycidas, um, of him that walks the waves, which is Jesus. Mm. Jesus walked on water. Mm -hmm. It's a miracle that he performed. Uh, it also contains the line, to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. What, do you get the illusion there? Yeah, that's what Christ says when he's asked. Somebody tries to trap him uh, about paying tax. Should, should we pay tax or not? And he says, render unto Caesar that what is Caesar, render unto God that which is God's, which got him off the hook nicely for a little bit. Mm -hmm. and good then, spin doctor, Jesus. <laughs> Would have been a really good one. I'm assuming you mean the 1990s rock band, the Spin Doctors. No. <laughs> uh, it goes on to then say, a riddling sentence to be woven on the church's looms. And then in Stephen's mind, he thinks, and I'm cherry picking this a little bit. He thinks in his mind, Riddle me, riddle me, Randy Rowe. My father gave me seeds to sow. And then he says out loud the, the riddle about the cock crew, the sky was blue to the students. Mm -hmm. And then they stare at him blankly. So um, many interpreters would see a, a biblical connection to this. Sky, sky isn't blue at 11 o'clock, even at the height of summer in Ireland. Well, why is the cock crowing as the bells are striking 11? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Another illusion that's pretty common throughout Ulysses 2 is Hamlet, and we have not touched on Hamlet at all um, because I'm not as interested in Hamlet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like talking about the, the religious angle more than the Hamlet angle, but let's do a little bit of Hamlet here. So Hamlet Sr., that, that's what I call him, right? King, Hamlet Sr. King Hamlet's ghost appears in the first scene of Hamlet, and it disappears when the cock crows at dawn. That that's kind of it. Is that this is a reference to Ham Hamlet's King Hamlet's ghost, right? Who is there to um, tell da his Daddy Hamlet? We'll Daddy him. Hamlet. Okay, I'm, I'm don't think his name is King Hamlet. I think Hamlet's the prince, right? So, yeah, as so. his father, and then his and then his uncle Claudius married his mother Gertrude. Okay, you know all the names. That's yeah, no, I know my Shakespeare. A ridiculous writer. All right. Well, we'll get to that eventually. But yeah, there are, there are some problems I see beginning to arise is that when you start pursuing any one of these threads, mm -hmm. and there are plenty of people who want to mash them up together. When you start pursuing, though, any of these threads, you have to start pulling in more and more weird things to make it work. Because the truth is, when you go back up to the riddle, the cock crew, the sky was blue, the bells in heaven were striking 11, tis time for this poor soul to go to heaven. It only kind of fits. Mm -hmm. And the answer to a riddle always has to fit completely. It can't ever kind of fit. And we haven't even touched on the answer, which is the fox bearing his grandmother under a holly bush. So even if you get the riddle itself, you're like, ah, it's a biblical illusion. It's a Shakespearean illusion. You have the problem of this, this answer here. 
and I see people online, and this is just how people, I think, do interpretation online, because I'm also a big fan of George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire series, and reading people's fan theories on that go <laughs> like tinfoil at the drop of a hat, because yeah. there's just information missing, yeah. and people want to fill that in. And they kind of do the same for Ulysses, but with, a, with an intellectual sense of purpose behind it. So I want to argue with them even less sometimes. But uh, the way I felt about this is whatever interpretation I come up with, it needs to in some way inform the characterization of Stephen and the plot of the book, which is minimalist, like not much happens in Ulysses. Hmm. And I wrote in the blog post version of this too, I wrote a whole paragraph about how important this is to interpreting Ulysses from my point of view. But I was reading one of the opening chapters of Stuart Gilbert's Ulysses, a study where he has like a page specifically where he said that the in the confines of Ulysses, characters and plot are meaningless. And the only thing that matters are the the, the symbols and the higher meanings and the um, the the correspondences that like. That's what's actually the most important. And I know that Joyce had like the sign behind the scenes handwriting that book. Mm. And I still don't really feel that, but I. That's, I, a, that's, I, a, that's a very uh, hermetic or mm-hmm. occultist way of, yeah, of looking at it. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Odd. Which, you know, mm-hmm. Joyce is a very naturalistic writer from what mm-hmm. we've been going through so far. Um, yeah. But clearly he was under the influence of some magical yes, spells. Yeah. And, or just an interest in magical thinking, mm. um, which is going to be a, 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 the next post that I write. Uh, that's what I'm researching mm. right now is Joyce's connection to Hermeticism and Kabbalah and all these things. Mm. And I've been reading an article uh, that we're getting way off topic, but we'll oh. just let's go with it. I've been reading an article about just what Hermeticism is, mm-hmm. and they're talking about the importance of all these different correspondences. Mm-hmm. and. It's eventually going to get around to talking about Ulysses. I'm reading it very slowly, but I was just like, that is exactly what Ulysses is, is that every every chapter of Ulysses has some higher correspondence to some art, to rhetoric or mm-hmm. you know, philosophy or theology. And then it also has some baser correspondence to you know, a physical element of like the sea and the tide or a, a actual physical organs things like that so Mm. um and colors each has a color correspondence right yeah because the article that you were reading we won't go too far off but the article that you were reading because this is a future podcast yeah we don't we don't want to like gazump ourselves but um mentioned uh pico de la mirandola that's a uh, yeah that that's i haven't read that yet so the fact that Mm -hmm. joyce was digging through i've been reading a separate book uh, Mm -hmm. about bruno uh, by Francis Yates, it was written in 1964. Joyce adored Bruno. And a lot of the material that we're coming across definitely dovetails and fits with that kind of mm-hmm. worldview. So anyone familiar with Ficino and Pico uh, will know that Joyce was up to his neck in this kind of material, mm-hmm. which is really surprising. Because you, you don't associate that with the, you know, you, you get given the, uh, the, the, the Homeric and the, the Dublin mm-hmm. aspect of it, but the fact that he was... Um, very familiar with Renaissance magic, you know, mm-hmm. and um, this, opens up other possibilities. I think his cyclical, his interest in cycles and cyclical history and cyclical mm-hmm. view of how the kind of the universe flows within itself is very informed by theosophy as well. Right. It's not. It's not an aspect that you'll find in materialistic science. 
I, yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm gonna leave it there though because yeah, yeah, um, I'm really about excited that. about writing about yeah, this no, because it's, it's yeah. something that we as 21st century people who have a 21st century education mm. would kind, I think, in, it reflexively recoil at. Like mm-hmm. we don't want to talk about Joyce being into magical thinking because mm-hmm. magical thinking in, is, you know, it's not something you use to compliment someone these days. Yeah. Yeah, but we'll, we'll dig into that in the future. I think it's gonna be great. Okay. But there are three symbols in this riddle, uh, coming back around, mm-hmm. that are recurrent throughout Ulysses. So I think if they're important enough for Joyce to repeat, we should take note of them now. And each time as you read through the book, when they pop up, think, what, what is Joyce trying to say here? So the first one is the, the fox, which he mentions foxes a lot throughout Ulysses. And they're not, like, there's not, like, a fox as part of the main plot. They're just kind of there. Mm-hmm. And a fox has a lot of association with death. Um, so a fox is, here's a great vocabulary word you can drop at a fancy dinner party this week. I know I'm going to. A fox is what's called a fossorial creature. And fossorial animals are animals that dig up and eat dead things. Mm, okay. So a fox, so this fox isn't digging up, though. He's burying his grandmother. So he's behaving in an anti-fox way. Mm -hmm. Um, And foxes are also sly and cunning, which means that because they have that association, they're also associated with guilt and hiding things. As an aside too, Mr. Fox was a a pseudonym of uh, Charles Stuart Parnell. So I think there's also a Parnell connection. And he does refer to Parnell is Mr. Fox much later in the book, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know that this has anything to do with Parnell, but please speculate wildly in the comments. And there was an early early liberal or Whig politician called Fox who's very famous, so we Mm -hmm. must look into him at some point. Yes. Um, Next is the cock. So as Dermot mentioned, like the cock has obvious, I'm going to say cock a lot too, I'm not saying rooster. The cock has obvious associations with guilt. Um, through Peter denying Christ three times mm-hmm. as pro- pro- prophesied in the Last Supper. And then in Hamlet, Horatio also associates the ghost with guilt. And he describes the ghost as, it started like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons. So there's that Shakespearean association there. And the religious association with the cock. Mm. And the ghost is related to the cock because he disappears when the the cock crows because ghosts are a thing of the night. Mm -hmm. Um, And finally, the number 11. So 11 appears in this riddle. The bells in heaven were striking 11. And why are the bells... I mean, sure, clocks ring every hour, but why is a cock crowing because the sun never rises at 11? Mm -hmm. Um, So 11 has the association of death as well. In a lot of ancient texts, the number 11 would be associated with death. For instance, in the Odyssey, Odysseus travels to the underworld in book 11 of the Odyssey. Uh, also, Lycidas, the, po- the John Milton poem that uh, young Talbot is forced to recite and can't remember in this very chapter, a mere few paragraphs before, is 11 stanzas long, and it's, a, it's an elegy for his friend who... He portrays as this ancient Greek figure, Lycidas, in the poem. Mm-hmm. There's a great post on the Blooms at Barnacles blog called Weep No More, colon, Lycidas and Nestor. If you'd like to know more about Lycidas, I would read that because I don't think we're going to podcast about it. Mm. 
the number 11 recurs a lot throughout the novel. So two big examples and something for you guys to, you know, look for or just pay attention to as you read is this number 11. So the biggest one is that Bloom's son, Rudy, died 11 years before the action of the novel. He, If he were still alive, he would be 11 years old. But obviously, uh, he's very much associated with death since he died. And Bloom often thinks how he would be 11 years old. Mm -hmm. Stephen's age is the other big one, which Stephen is 22. Mm -hmm. And he so he is two 11s mm -hmm. put together. Or he was 11 years old when Bloom's son died. Yes. Mm. Good. Yeah. Mm. Did you I have any know. other thoughts on number 11? Yeah. The, well, there's all 11, 11 uh, thing. Well, which, that's your thing. Well, no, I, I introduced you to it and then you started seeing them everywhere. And, you know, you, uh, you can get obsessed with numbers very easily because then once you become conscious of them, uh, you know, you see them mm -hmm. everywhere. So Robert Anton Wilson had the thing for 23. And if you start looking for 23, you'll start finding them everywhere. Mm, this might be a little off topic. Okay. But um, yeah, okay. We so we'll go back. In. Yeah. All Sorry. right. Okay. So are you ready for the bombshell? Mm-hmm. Here's the thing that I learned that blew this wide open for me. Because we, we've talked about all these different symbolisms. And if you listeners have more, like we didn't even talk about the holly bush and what that might mean. Why is the grandmother... Please feel free to drop those in the comments. Uh, wild speculation is welcome. <laughs> but I will say, too, one one thing I've often thought to myself while reading people's pet theories on Ulysses is that this book's been studied for 90-some years now. If you think that you've discovered some brand new, totally undiscovered... I think I just repeated myself. Totally undiscovered secret in Ulysses... Uh, check yourself before you wreck yourself, because some like <laughs> some someone else you know has already studied it in more depth. Anyway, yeah. I I would I would shy away from that particular sort of hubris, mm. um, because I don't know how much new there is to discover. So it's it's all just your own personal interpretation at this point. Anyway, here's what blew this wide open for me: Joyce did not write this riddle. I'm going to pause while you pick your, your jaw <laughs> from the floor. So this is a folk riddle that existed in Ireland um, previous to the writing of Ulysses. Mm -hmm. So it appears in a, a 1910 book. Does the original one make sense? Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> it appears in a 1910 book called English as We Speak It in Ireland by Patrick Weston Joyce. Mm -hmm. No relation. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with P.W. Joyce? No. He, um, in the late 1800s in the early 20th century, he spent his career just collecting folk stories and folk sayings and just all these different things from common people in Ireland. So he wrote lots, I think he wrote A History of Ireland. He wrote, um, and he wrote this book, which is about Hiberno-English, basically. Right. Right. And as part of that, it, it kind of reminds me too of, in the previous section we talked about, um, Stephen remarks to himself after his student says something foolish. Oh, one for Haynes's chat book because Haynes is a young man going around collecting sayings. Right. Um, you know, but I, I think that James Joyce had respect for P.W. Joyce because he owned some of his books. So I think it's probably likely okay. he'd be familiar with this. Right. Um, and he writes about the riddle and it he says it has no particular meaning. And in fact... What he says is this. Though Solomon solved all the riddles propounded to him by the Queen of Sheba, 
I think this would put him to the pin of his collar. So saying Solomon himself could not solve this riddle. Hmm. And in the wonderful Rejoice podcast by Frank Delaney, which I listened to to get his take on this riddle while I was researching this, he grew up in Tipperary in the mid-20th century, a little bit before, and he said it was really common for him and his school fellows to recite this type of riddle, where he said there were all these riddles, and he, if you want to listen to it, it'll be in the episode notes. Um, they will recite this kind of riddle where it's just gibberish, with a gibberish answer, and it basically, the fun of it was not solving it, but just the rhythm of it or the words were nice to say. It was just mm -hmm. fun to say nonsense things. Right. It's like an Edward Lear poem or you know, Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll mm -hmm. or whatever. And when you you read the original poem in, in P.W. Joyce's book, which you can see online, I have an archived copy of it where you, you can go and see it, so that's also in the episode notes. Another important thing here is that James Joyce altered the riddle for Ulysses. You want to hear the original? Yes. All right, here it comes. Riddle me, riddle me right. What did I see last night? The wind blew, the cock crew, the bells of heaven struck eleven. Tis time for my poor soul to go to heaven. Same riddle? But the first three lines he took out. Mm -hmm. I think they weren't. And it also spells soul, S-O-W-L. I have no comment there. I don't know why. Hmm. And the answer this time around is the fox burying his mother under a holly tree. Not the grandmother? Not the grandmother. The fox bur burying his mother. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Why do you think he changed it from grandmother or from mother to grandmother? I believe he's had a Freudian slip. <laughs> is that your German accent? <laughs> Austrian. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, this is Stephen's... It's identical to my German accent. Mm. Just, uh... So my theory about the poem is not... is I'm less interested in the biblical or Shakespearean or Irish folk symbolism or ancient Celtic mystic symbolism you might find in it. Mm -hmm. What I am interested in is the changing of this one word. Right. Because I think that's the one that matters. Mm -hmm. Is This is representing Steve's guilt manifest. Um, he unconsciously changes mother to grandmother because of his guilt around his mother's death. Right. And this whole section up until when Mr. Deasy shows up is him struggling to stay focused in his class and his mother kind of bubbling up in his thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so he starts out talking about, about Pyrrhus. Um, all you can think about is Pyrrhus's death and the death wrought by Pyrrhic victories. Death, death, death. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, that's enough of that. This is, you know, it's kind of triggering, triggering his his uh, trauma, as the, the youngins would say now. But it is. I mean, it, losing a parent is a very traumatic event. Yeah. Um, it's not something one recovers from. And his whole life was turned upside down by her death. Yeah. Uh, he wants to be back in Paris because there is a little flight of fancy about him studying in the St. Genevieve's library in, in Paris in the midst of all this too is he wishes he was back in Paris and not in this you know boys school and mm. dull key poor kid you know, and he doesn't deal with it well I mean I think it goes without saying Stephen has not dealt with his emotions well yeah stuff it down deep into the darkness yeah. see what happens um, so what did they focus on after he's just like oh this Paris stuff is too much Let's go to literature, and they're reciting elegy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he's just like, "Oh, this is too much." Uh, riddle. Let's do a riddle. 
All right, I've got a riddle. <laughs> and then the riddle is also kind of riddled with the, the riddle is riddled with. The riddle is full of this kind of death imagery. Right. And so his mother pops up instead of Grant. Or he re- no, he replaces grandmother. No, I can't say it right. He replaces mother with grandmother right. because he can't. He doesn't want to think about getting her. bombarded. Like yeah. he, he, you know, set a trap for himself. Right. After the boys exit the classroom, Stephen remains behind to uh, tutor a student named Cyril Sargent with his algebra. And while Sargent is working on his algebra, uh, which means we get to talk about it very soon, which I think you'll enjoy. Oh, yeah. Um, Stephen, you know, this this is Stephen's internal monologue while he's helping Sargent. So Dermot's going to read that. Yet someone had loved him. Born him in her arms and in her heart. But for her, the race of the world would have trampled him underfoot, a squashed, boneless snail. She had loved his weak, watery blood drained from her own. Was that then real, the only true thing in life? So that is Stephen thinking about Sargent, who is this sort of little oh, okay. beanpole of a child who comes up with messy hair mm-hmm. and a, a big smudge of ink on his cheek and... He doesn't know how to do algebra right, so he has to stay in while all the other boys go and play hockey in the yard. But that could really be Stephen describing himself. And he's looking at this this little weak child, which could have been little Stephen, mm-hmm. and thinking about how <laughs> this kid's kind of pathetic, yep. but his mother loved him. Yeah. And she gave part of her life force to create him. Yeah. And she's done all she can to raise him, even though he's this weak little snail Mm. so is he really thinking about sergeant yeah or is he thinking about steven yeah i think steven's seeing himself steven thinks about steven a lot steven does think about steven a lot but i think he's trying to distract himself but he just looks at this kid and sees himself Mm -hmm. which i don't think is is a selfish thing in this this part but right after that then this sort of transforms in his mind to the next passage, which Dermot's also going to read. She was no more. The trembling skeleton of a twig burnt in the fire, an odour of rosewood and wetted ashes. She had saved him from being trampled underfoot and had gone, scarcely having been. A poor soul gone to heaven, and on a heath beneath winking stars, a fox, red reek of rapine in his fur, with merciless bright eyes scraped in the earth, listened, scraped up the earth, listened, scraped, and scraped. Do you know what uh, Stephen's talking about here? Do you remember the phrase, an odor of rosewood and wetted ashes? Mm. No, I forget where that was from. That's, um, he associates that with his mother's death and mm-hmm. her funeral and her sick room. Right, that was the smell in her, her deathbed. Yeah, mm. so that, um, I can't remember off the top of my head if that was actually in her sick room or just the smell oh, in his okay. dream. Do you remember he had that ghostly dream right. of her? Right, it's really horrific. Yeah, and this yeah. imagery, I believe, is from the dream. Okay. And he uses that exact same phrase. So that ties the fox back with directly to his mother's death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rosewood and, and wetted ashes. So it's, it's Stephen's nightmare. Mm-hmm. So there's all this death imagery that's just pulsating in his head. You know, Pyrrhus and death. Lycidas, death. Mm-hmm. Kids ask for a friggin' ghost story. Death. Lycidas was about Milton's friend who drowned, right? Yes. And of course, his mother drowns basically in her own lungs. She she's coughing up. Yes. Yeah, it's disgusting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an elegy. It's very death focused, mm-hmm. and the 
the phrase that comes up is, is weep no more. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. about overcoming the grief around that death, which Stephen is not ready yeah. for. Yeah. He changes the riddle in a way to cover up his guilt around her death. And here we see Stephen thinks that he is the fox, this fossorial creature mm-hmm. digging up his own mother's body. He describes his mother's phantom that appears in the dream as a ghoul chewer of corpses. But Stephen here sees himself as the ghoul and chewer of corpses. Hmm. Fueled in part by Buck Mulligan, who in the previous chapter blamed Stephen directly for his mother's death. And one last little bit here, too, is that is one detail that Patrick West and Joyce gives us about foxes and the way they were thought of in Ireland at that time is that there was an ex- expression used where if you called, if you said someone begins their meal like a fox, so they use in the sentence, oh, you know Dermot, he always begins his meal like a fox. <laughs> what that means is that you are eat, you begin eating without saying grace because a fox never never prays or says grace mm-hmm. before the meal. Mm-hmm. They just kind of tuck in. As opposed to a cat, which, you know, does. Yeah, no, it's a strange thing would pick on the fox for that. Because the fox yeah. is associated with death and yeah. cunning and these kind of negative qualities. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so fox is also associated with refusal to pray at an appropriate time for prayer. Mm-hmm. Guess who else did that? Stephen mm-hmm. Dedalus. Mm-hmm. Remember, his mother wanted him to pray by her, her deathbed. And yep. He refused to do it. Yeah. So he's the fox mm-hmm. refusing to pray and then chewing on his mother's corpse, digging her up, scraping her out of the ground. In, in literature, which is what he's doing here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he is so guilty that he sees his guilt manifested everywhere he turns, even in these lines of a silly, meaningless children's riddle. Mm. He's, he cannot escape his own guilt. Do you still think mm. he's a terrible atheist? Oh, he's the worst. Yeah, <laughs> he's still, all the yeah. Catholic machinery is still yeah. whirring around in his basement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think if if you uh, if you've you've tried to change your your beliefs or lose your faith in that way, mm-hmm. um, very consciously, that as steadfast as you may feel at the best of times, once something like this shakes you. All that stuff has a way of clattering off of you, just leaving that kind of whatever forms the the innermost part of yourself, mm. the unconscious part. Yeah, it's still all in there. Mm-hmm. But it's the religion, though, isn't something that he can uh, go to for comfort. Mm. It's all ghouls and right. wetted ash and right. the red rapine of in his fur and <laughs> you know, yeah, it's all it's all scary monster stuff. Any final thoughts? I wish Joyce had written some horror novels. He'd be really good at them. He would have been good at them. Like he would have written rings around Lovecraft and Stephen King and all that. There's a paragraph very, very far in the future for us in the paragraph or in a chapter called Oxen of the Sun mm-hmm. where like every few paragraphs he is doing a pastiche of a different writing style. Mm-hmm. And there is one glorious paragraph in the midst of it where he writes it in the style of a horror novel mm-hmm. and is one of my favorite paragraphs in the whole book. <laughs> okay. I will be very happy and right. when we get to it. Right. It's, it's just it. really fun um, for me. I don't I don't know if anybody else enjoys it <laughs> as much as I do, but we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, well, he can really conjure things like that, that great, you know, famous last 
the paragraphs of the dead, you know, mm. you read that and you go, this is a ghost story. This is really comes across very much as an actual ghost story. Mm-hmm. And it's not just metaphorical or symbolic or in mm-hmm. his head, you know, you get that chill up, the, up to your back. Mm-hmm. Uh, far more effective than many actual ostensible horror mm-hmm. novels. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's the answer to Stephen's riddle. Mm, okay. The riddle doesn't mean anything. What is significant is that he changed mother to grandmother to mm-hmm. hide his own guilt. Yeah. Ireland's full of yeah n- nonsense, like, yeah, like you said, <laughs> the, uh, Edward, Edward Lear type stuff. But mm-hmm. he was English. But, you know, I think a lot of it was mm-hmm. definitely uh, Celtic chicanery. And yeah, you know, so I wouldn't. And anybody comes from an Anglo background and wants to read too much, uh, you know, rationalism into some of those folk riddles might be <laughs> barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, I think the that appreciating nonsense for nonsense's sake is, mm-hmm. again, not a very 21st century way of looking at things. Yeah. We uh, we love to analyze. We love to pry things open and yeah. turn them all around and what figure out how they mean? work. What does it mean? You know, that, yeah, yeah. But something, yeah, this is something that was meant to have no meaning right. and for people to revel in the meaninglessness of it. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And I think Joyce was just using this common kind of folk activity that I think Irish people would have been familiar with at that time and just inserting it into his novel mm-hmm. and then changing it to suit his needs for his characterization of Stephen in that moment. Right. Um, the same reason he he could have used any poem he wanted. He used Lycidas because it's a poem about death. Yeah. As a, a poem about someone overcoming their death, and he was not ready to read. Yeah, that. he could have used the daffodils by William Wordsworth, <laughs> yeah. but he didn't. Yeah, yeah. So, solved. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Next. Yeah, no, I do. I do feel really like I feel way too confident about this. Where I'm just like, there's there's not some deeper thing we're all trying to dig and find. You just hmm. you, the only thing that matters is that one word. Right. So, all right. Uh, you can tell me why I'm wrong at our Facebook or Twitter. Uh, Feel free to do that. (laughs) That's all for now. We'll see you again in two weeks. All right. Oh, um, also this post, or this this is not a post because it's a a face, it's not a Facebook, it's a podcast. That's (laughs) We've we've been working two jobs Um, if we sound tired. (laughs) But uh, this podcast will drop next Wednesday. I will be in Washington, D.C., um until the 14th so if you are a blooms and barnacle fan um, in 2019 just in case you're in listening 2019, in 2019 yeah don't don't call me two years from now i won't be there but uh if you hear this and you're just like i'm in dc and i'd love to talk about something related to joyce we're always looking for new interesting people to have on the podcast uh, so drop me either a facebook message or a electronic mail and electronic mail. Yeah. Email to your kids. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you can find all that information at our web at our in the episode notes of this. All right, that's enough weird rambling <laughs> ending. We had like several really good places we could have just stopped. Yeah. All right. Signing off for this fortnight. I've been Kelly. I'm Dermot. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Please visit our website at bloomsandbarnacles.com to read our blog, which is updated weekly on Mondays with a new blog post and artwork about James Joyce's novel, Ulysses. And you'll find a new podcast there as well, fortnightly. We are on Facebook. You can search for our Facebook group, 
Blooms and Barnacles podcast on Facebook, and if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at BarnacleCast. You can find our podcast pretty much any place you find podcasts. That includes iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Go ahead and subscribe, and you won't have to remember which week we're dropping the podcast. Also, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes as that helps our rankings and helps people find the podcast. And if you leave a positive review, we'll read it on the podcast. Finally, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is through email. You can email us at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Please send questions and comments and we'll read them on the show if we get any good ones. Until then, have a great two weeks. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.